Chapter Thirteen of Famous Assassinations of History by Francis Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: Assassination of Wallenstein, February Twenty-Four, Sixteen Thirty-Four. In a previous chapter, we have seen how a king of England got rid of a contentious archbishop of the Church of Rome by assassination when the latter stood in the way of his usurpation. In a similar manner, also by assassination, an emperor of Germany freed himself from a general who had twice saved him from ruin, but who had grown too powerful for his security, and whose loyalty he, perhaps justly, mistrusted. Although nearly three hundred years have passed away since Wallenstein's assassination at Eger Bohemia, the most searching investigations of historians have been unable to establish beyond a reasonable doubt the certainty or extent of his treasonable intentions, although there are strong indications that they existed, and that the crown of Bohemia, as a sovereign state, was to be the price which he exacted for his treason. The religious war which had broken out between the Emperor of Germany, as representative of the Catholic Church, and the Protestant princes of North Germany in 1618, had been waged with great cruelty and varying success for several years. Neither party had won such decisive advantages that the end of the terrible struggle, which partook as much of the character of a civil war as of a religious war, could be predicted with any degree of certainty. The most unfortunate feature of this strife was that not only the different German princes were fighting against each other, but that also foreign princes, upon the invitation of the Germans, participated in the struggle and gave their support to either the Catholic or the Protestant side. The German princes themselves had formed two different alliances. The Catholics had formed the League, while the Protestants were members of the Protestant Union and both parties had powerful armies in the field commanded by experienced and able generals, the Catholics by Tilly, the Protestants by Mansfeld, and the Duke of Brunswick. The greatest of these generals was perhaps Tilly, but he was extremely cruel and vindictive, fully as much from religious hatred for the enemies of his church as from natural disposition. His conquest and pillage of Magdeburg has given to his name a deplorable immortality. The Emperor of Germany, Ferdinand II, was rather nominally than actually the warlord of the Catholic party. For the Catholic League, which had placed the army in the field, had elected Maximilian of Bavaria as its supreme chief. Thus, while the Catholic armies were called the imperialists, and while the victories which they achieved were supposed to redound to the emperor's glory, Ferdinand could not repress a feeling of humiliation at the thought that he owed these victories and the advantages which resulted from them more to the generosity and loyalty of the Catholic League than to his own power and resources. Once or twice Protestant soldiers had even threatened him in his own imperial palace, and he had owed his safety from capture or death only to the timely intervention of some Spanish and Croatian horsemen who dispersed the aggressors. 
in november sixteen twenty tilly had at the head of a powerful army won a decisive victory over the army of the protestant union by the battle of white mountain then having restored bohemia and moravia to the rule of the emperor the victorious general quickly marched to the palatinate where the cause of the protestants was at that time supreme but he was defeated there by the protestant army under mansfeld and the margrave of baden and at that time protestantism might have been triumphantly established in western and northern germany at least had not the two victorious protestant generals made the mistake of separating their armies a mistake which proved fatal to both of them tilly was not slow to see the advantage which he gained by this dismemberment of the army which had so signally defeated him at wiesloch he rallied his forces and defeated first the margrave of baden at wimpfen and shortly afterwards mansfeld and the duke of brunswick at herxt then the protestant armies crossed the frontier of the netherlands in the hope of receiving assistance from england in the meantime the german emperor emboldened by the success of tilly strained every nerve to re-establish catholicism and stamp out protestantism in the empire the excessive zeal which he displayed in accomplishing this purpose and the terrible work of destruction which tilly and his lieutenants were carrying on in all those districts of the empire which were unfortunate enough to fall under their sway were however the means of setting protestantism on its feet again of reviving the waning hopes of the german protestant princes and of arousing a powerful interest in their behalf among their neighbours the most important accession which the cause of protestantism had at that time was that of king christian the fourth of denmark who joined the protestants with a large army and took supreme command in northern germany such were the conditions in germany at the moment when the man who is the subject of this chapter appeared on the stage as principal actor in the terrible war of thirty years this man one of the most remarkable men of the seventeenth century and one of the most eminent generals in german history was wallenstein for seven years he was the greatest man of the war eclipsing the fame of tilly himself filling the minds of enemies and friends and finally that of the emperor himself with vague fears and apprehensions of his treason and unbridled ambition but in the flower of his age his life was cut short by the hands of assassins the empire seemed to be hopelessly divided between catholicism and protestantism and civil war with all its terrors and horrors laid waste its fairest provinces the emperor had lost much of his authority while maximilian of bavaria commander-in-chief of the armies of the catholic league wielded a power which was supreme wherever the so-called imperialists held possession of country or town it was a humiliating position for the emperor but he was utterly powerless to extricate himself from it suddenly a deliverer came to him in the person of albert lord wallenstein a bohemian nobleman who had married the daughter of count harach the emperor's special favorite he was immensely rich and had won great military distinction in the bohemian wars it was this lord wallenstein who on a morning in june 1625 presented himself before the emperor ferdinand of germany with a proposition which at first appeared so extravagant and incredible to the emperor himself and his counsellors that they doubted the sanity or sincerity of the man who made it 
but he insisted on the feasibility of his plan with so much eloquence and enthusiasm that they finally consented to it wallenstein proposed to the emperor to enroll entirely at his own personal expense an army to fight for the cause of the emperor and to protect his hereditary states provided he should have the power to make that army at least fifty thousand strong to appoint all the officers and to take supreme command himself without being interfered with by other generals no matter how highly stationed they might be the immense wealth of Wallenstein guaranteed the financial success of the plan. Moreover, he received permission to make his army self-sustaining by pillage, marauding, and forced contributions in all those districts which it might temporarily occupy. When the new plan and the appointment of Wallenstein to the command of a large army, larger than any other in the field, became known, the world, and especially Germany, was struck with amazement, and there were but few who believed that it could be carried out. But those who doubted did not know the tremendous energy, the boundless resources, and the towering ambition of the man. The plan was carried out to its fullest extent. Within a few months a large and well-equipped army was ready to take the field, and Wallenstein, whose name was comparatively unknown in the history of war, suddenly assumed an importance which eclipsed that of the renowned generals of the Catholic League and of the Protestant Union. The suddenness of his elevation, the apparent mystery surrounding him, and the rumors of the royal rewards in store for him made the imperialistic generals very jealous it may be truthfully said that from the very moment wallenstein took command of his army he had not only to face the protestant armies in the field but also to guard against his catholic rivals who used their high connections in the imperial court to undermine his position and blacken his character in a most unscrupulous manner the achievements of wallenstein fully realized the high expectations of the emperor he displayed consummate generalship in the field, and had a magnetic power of attraction which caused his whole army, both officers and men, to idolize him. At the same time, his army increased rapidly and wonderfully. It soon reached the 100,000 mark, and still they were coming, while the armies of the League were decreasing at a fearful rate from camp diseases and the ravages of war the emperor made him duke of friedland and the friedlanders became soon a terror to friend and foe in his march of victory which extended from hungary and transylvania to the baltic sea he swept the protestant armies from the face of the earth where the friedlanders had passed no human dwelling no human being remained to tell of the cruelty and devastation which had struck the country and which fell with the same crushing weight on catholics and protestants the army was to be self-sustaining and was therefore given full liberty of pillage and marauding wherever it went coming to the extreme north of germany he invaded mecklenburg whose dukes had furnished men and money to the king of denmark in his campaign against the imperialists the king of denmark had after a decisive defeat left germany and returned to his own kingdom and on wallenstein's approach the duke of mecklenburg also hastily decamped and left his country to the mercy of the conqueror wallenstein took possession of it and was rewarded with the title of duke of mecklenburg and the rank of a sovereign prince of the empire 
The royal crown of Bohemia, which rumor and secret whisperings designated as the reward in store for him after the conclusion of peace, was now not so far off as on the day he took the command of his army. But the higher he rose, the greater became the envy and hatred of his rivals, especially of the sovereign princes whose countries and cities had suffered from the passing of his army. From Mecklenburg, Wallenstein turned to Pomerania, where Stralsund, one of the greatest fortresses of the empire, impeded his further progress. Wallenstein invested it with his army and made several assaults, which were successfully repulsed. The brave inhabitants had sworn to hold out to the last, and rather perish in the defense of their hearths and home and families than surrender their city to a conqueror who showed no mercy to the vanquished. Wallenstein, on the other hand, was determined to enter the city as a conqueror. Hearing that the inhabitants would defend the city unto death, he swore that he would take it even if it were bound with chains to heaven, and he laid a regular siege to it. But all his efforts were in vain. The Swedes succeeded in giving succor to the beleaguered city from the seaward side, reinforcing it with troops, ammunition, and provisions. Finally, after a delay of two months and a loss of 12,000 men, Wallenstein abandoned the project of taking the city, raised the siege, and returned to Mecklenburg. There the conquest of the strongly fortified city of Rostock consoled him to a certain extent for his failure at Stralsund. Emboldened by the great successes of Wallenstein and the almost complete overthrow of the Protestant armies, the emperor, rather rashly, undertook to reinstate the Catholic Church in all its former privileges, and to compel the Protestant states to restore all the property and real estate which had been confiscated and estranged from that church during the preceding eighty years. To carry out this imperial plan, the so-called Restitution Edict was promulgated, a very unwise measure, which spread consternation and alarm throughout the empire, and fanned the dying embers of the religious war into a new flame. Not only Protestants, but many Catholics protested against the edict, and Wallenstein himself criticized it sharply. But the emperor would not recede from the resolution he had taken. Wallenstein's influence was already rapidly declining. His overthrow was near at hand. In 1630, the imperial diet of Regensburg was held. All the sovereign princes of Germany, and especially all the electors of the empire, were present, and they made jointly a terrible onslaught on Wallenstein, whom they all hated or envied. They united their complaints against him and demanded his immediate and peremptory dismissal from the service as a punishment for the outrages committed by his army and for the extortions and exorbitant levies which he had made from friend and foe for his own self-aggrandizement. For a long time the emperor resisted these demands and stood up for the great general to whom he owed so much but he was anxious to secure the votes of the electors for his son, the King of Hungary, as heir to the imperial crown, and the dismissal of Wallenstein was to be the price for these votes. He therefore issued the decree, deposing Wallenstein from his office of generalissimo of the army. It is said that he trembled in affixing his signature to the document, and that for weeks afterwards he lived in extreme fear of the wrath of the powerful chieftain but Wallenstein took his disgrace very coolly. The news came to him at a moment when he was with Sinni, a famous astrologer, in whom he placed implicit confidence. 
Sinney had just predicted to him, from a configuration of the stars, that he would experience a tremendous disappointment, but that this disappointment would be followed soon by his complete reinstatement in all the honors which he might be deprived of. Wallenstein took the decree of deposition as the confirmation of Sinney's prediction. Without showing much irritation, and only with an expression of regret that the emperor had been ill-advised and had yielded to bad counsels, he left the army and withdrew to Prague, the capital of Bohemia, to live there in royal splendor and luxury. When Wallenstein's soldiers were informed of the dismissal of their chief, whom they idolized and regarded with an affection mingled with awe and terror, there was danger of an open revolt against the emperor's decree. But Wallenstein himself and some of his generals quieted their rage and suppressed all manifestations of rebellion. Thousands of soldiers and a great number of officers refused to remain in the emperor's service, declaring that they had enlisted only in order to serve under Wallenstein and under no other commander. More than half of the entire army left the service, and most of the officers, at their own request, accompanied the deposed general to his new place of residence, Prague. The disgrace of the general, or rather the act of removal which in the eyes of the German princes was intended to disgrace him, turned out to be a triumph, greater than a victory in the field, and made his position in Germany even more conspicuous. Moreover, everybody seemed to feel that the hour of his reinstatement would soon come, and Wallenstein, on his part, neglected nothing to confirm this opinion, which flattered his vanity, and which he firmly believed would be realized, because it was written in the stars. It was, perhaps, as a challenge to his princely enemies at the imperial court, and in defiance of the emperor himself, that he established his household on a footing more becoming a reigning monarch than a private citizen. He had a secret desire to accustom the people of Bohemia to look upon him as the man who might, within a short time, be called upon to rule over them as king. Otherwise it is hardly reasonable to suppose that he would have paraded such wealth and magnificence as could not but confirm the charges preferred against him by his influential enemies, namely gigantic extortions and robberies of public and private monies, and plans to satisfy an insatiable ambition. His palace had six public entrances, and he caused a hundred houses to be torn down to enlarge the vacant place surrounding it. By day and by night it was guarded by sentinels, and during the night the public streets leading to it were barred with chains, that the rest of the duke might not be disturbed. In the hall leading to the antechamber of his private apartments, fifty halberdiers were constantly on guard, while sixty pages, all from the best families of Germany, four chamberlains, six barons, and a master of ceremonies belonging to one of the most illustrious houses of the empire, were always ready to receive the orders of the great man. Whenever he travelled, his own carriage was drawn by eight full-blooded horses, his attendants followed in fifty carriages, each drawn by six horses, while as many baggage-wagons, each drawn by four horses, transported the baggage for the ducal procession, and sixty richly mounted cavaliers formed the regular escort of His Highness. As if Providence wished to advance the pretensions of Wallenstein, the Emperor's affairs took a turn for the worse soon after his removal from the command of the army. 
incensed at the intolerance of the german emperor and his restitution edict which was to be enforced in its full severity gustavus adolphus the great and high-minded king of sweden came to the assistance of the protestant princes of northern germany he came not unsupported behind him and as his secret ally stood the king of france or rather richelieu this great french statesman although a cardinal of the catholic church saw the time had come to curtail the power of austria and therefore utilized the military genius of gustavus adolphus to effectually cripple the emperor's power and to raise france to a predominant position in europe richelieu equipped and subsidized the swedish armies and by doing so enabled the swedish king whose country was comparatively poor and whose resources were consequently limited to take the field in germany with a strong force on the twenty fourth of june sixteen thirty gustavus adolphus landed his army in pomerania that date marks the turning point in the fortunes of the thirty years war the swedish king's piety and the strict discipline which he maintained in his army stood in such glaring contrast to the excesses and outrages committed by the armies of tilly and wallenstein that the king was welcomed by the sovereigns of northern germany as a saviour and liberator it is not our purpose to describe the glorious and victorious career of gustavus adolphus in the empire suffice it to say that the conditions of victory and defeat of triumph and despondency were entirely reversed that the imperial armies were unable to stem the tide of victory which had set in for the protestant cause since the swedish king's appearance on german soil that his progress southward was rapid and incessant that the catholic princes were either vanquished or fugitives from their states and that the emperor himself was trembling in his palace at vienna as report after report informed him of the uninterrupted onward march of the royal hero who can help who can oppose and prevent this steady march of conquest to the terrified mind of the emperor only one man presents himself it is wallenstein but wallenstein has been mortally offended by him how can the emperor humiliate himself before a subject and assuage his wrath the danger is increasing gustavus is still on the rhine but he prepares an invasion of wittenberg many of whose inhabitants will gladly welcome him the advance of his army under general horn is in franconia and driving the imperialists before him no time is to be lost the emperor sends a friendly message to wallenstein but the message is haughtily rejected and the messengers are treated with arrogance not to say contempt he sends back word to the emperor that he does not care to repair the faults of others that he is not on friendly terms with the allies of the emperor that he is tired and sick of war that he is in need of rest etc the emperor sends new messengers holds out new rewards he insists and appeals at last in december sixteen thirty one wallenstein promises to raise a new army equip it and place it in the field by the first of march sixteen thirty two but he positively refuses to command it the magic power of his name renews the prodigy of six years before on the first of march the hereditary states of austria bohemia silesia and moravia had furnished him a splendid army of forty thousand men but it was a body without a soul it lacked a leader able to command it and lead it to victory 
the most urgent demands prayers supplications of the emperor at last decide wallenstein to take the command of this army which is crazed with enthusiasm when he finally accepts but he accepts only on conditions most humiliating to the emperor he will be generalissimo of the armies of austria and spain he will appoint all his subordinate officers the emperor will not be permitted to join the army and will in no way interfere with its direction or movements wallenstein will receive one of the hereditary states of austria as a reward he will be war governor of all the territory occupied by his army he will have the right to levy contributions and all confiscated property will belong to him he alone can grant amnesty he will remain duke of mecklenburg even if another crown be given to him all his expenditures will be paid back to him at the conclusion of peace and in case of defeat he will have the right to retire upon vienna and remain there these conditions readily granted by the emperor made wallenstein practically the dictator of the empire it was at nuremberg one of the most ancient and prosperous cities of bavaria that the two great captains met face to face for the first time gustavus adolphus had many friends in the city which he wanted to protect against the imperialists and from which he had received many reinforcements and supplies his army had taken quarters in the immediate neighborhood when wallenstein approached the king expected an immediate attack but in this expectation he was disappointed whether he was afraid to endanger his party and his own reputation by the chances of a battle or whether he thought that to check the victorious progress of the king was equivalent to a victory and would dishearten his allies or whether the hope of starving the army of the king by cutting off his communications and supplies prompted his action wallenstein massed his army in front of nuremberg erected breastworks and strongly fortified them and observed every movement of his great antagonist it was evident that he wished to avoid giving battle in this way they remained for eleven weeks opposed to one another neither daring to become the aggressor or to leave his fortified position it was the king who moved first provisions both in his camp and in the city were getting very scarce and a contagious camp disease had broken out among his troops and spread to the city decimating the ranks of his army he therefore resolved to attack the position of wallenstein and take it by storm a terrible battle ensued the swedes and the protestant army showed wonderful bravery but the heavy artillery of wallenstein mowed them down in long lines and they were unable to stand the incessant volleys of shot and shell which poured into their ranks all day long the assault was repulsed with terrible loss to the swedish army and wallenstein had the glory of having inflicted the first defeat on gustavus adolphus this defeat was the more painful to the king because he had lost from ten to twelve thousand of his best soldiers and some of his ablest commanders in the vain attempt to take wallenstein's position but the defeat had no other bad results for gustavus adolphus for wallenstein permitted him to retreat from nuremberg without molesting attacking or pursuing him although his army was greatly superior in numbers to the king's army and although his loss during the battle of the preceding day was much smaller in fact wallenstein's loss in killed and wounded was estimated at no more than one thousand 
the neglect of wallenstein to annihilate the king's army when everything seemed to favor such an attempt is among the strongest evidences of his treacherous sentiments it caused consternation at vienna and his enemies charged him openly with treason but the emperor had no right to interfere finally wallenstein also left his fortified camp but instead of following gustavus adolphus to thuringia he went in an easterly direction and invaded saxony where he captured a detachment of two thousand five hundred swedes and with them count thurn a german nobleman who for some reason or other had left the emperor's service and had entered the swedish kings this count thurn was especially odious to the emperor and when the news of his capture reached vienna there was general rejoicing the count would unquestionably have been executed but to the utter dismay of the court wallenstein set him free and permitted him to return to the king as his enemies asserted with secret overtures from the imperialist commander it is possible although by no means certain that wallenstein remembering how ungratefully he had been treated before and thinking that the same ingratitude might be shown to him again as soon as his services were no longer needed may have tried to open negotiations with the swedish king to secure from him personal recognition and advantages which he was afraid would be withheld from him after the king's final overthrow his fears were certainly not unreasonable for the emperor was surrounded by and lent a willing ear to the bitter enemies of wallenstein and to the very men who had brought about his first disgrace and dismissal the king on the other hand if he received such overtures from wallenstein either distrusted him or did not see fit to act upon them favorably possibly because wallenstein's terms were too extravagant as soon as gustavus adolphus had learned of wallenstein's invasion of saxony he turned round and in forced marches hurried also to saxony in order to protect that unfortunate country from the ravages of the friedlanders the elector of saxony while secretly favoring the german emperor had appealed to the king of sweden for protection and gustavus adolphus had granted his request he marched so rapidly that wallenstein when informed of his approach at first refused to believe the truth of the report but nevertheless prepared to give him a warm reception having sent a few days before his most renowned cavalry general pappenheim in another direction he now sent messengers after him to recall him the two great captains met at lutzen on the sixth of november a terrible battle ensued in which gustavus adolphus was killed but wallenstein was defeated at least he left the battlefield in the possession of the enemy and retreated to bohemia this retrograde movement and his retreat from the battlefield were unfavorably commented on at vienna and declared unnecessary insinuations of treason were again whispered into the emperor's ear and his suspicion was aroused to such a degree that wallenstein's removal from the army was resolved upon although this intention was kept secret for a while the emperor surrounded himself with spanish soldiers to be safe from an attack of the friedlanders he also succeeded by bribes and promises in estranging a number of wallenstein's prominent lieutenants from him and in securing them for his own service to some extent wallenstein was kept informed of these secret steps of the emperor and he tried to counteract them and to protect himself 
he renewed his negotiations with the Swedes and the Protestant princes, who had found in Bernard, Duke of Saxe-Weimar, a worthy successor of King Gustavus Adolphus as a military leader, and it is said that an agreement had been made by the two leaders of the opposing armies that Wallenstein's forces should join the Protestant army, and that they jointly should impose conditions of peace upon the emperor. It goes without saying that a sovereignty for Wallenstein, most likely that of Bohemia, was included in the terms of peace. Before this agreement could be carried out, events occurred which not only precipitated the downfall, but cut short the life of the overambitious military chieftain. It was of the greatest importance to Wallenstein to find out how far he would be able to rely on his army commanders and on their regiments in carrying out his treasonable projects. He first revealed these to three of them, Tertsky, Kinsky, and Illo, the first two related to him by marriage, and the last an avowed and bitter enemy of the emperor, who had refused to raise him to the rank of count. It was Illo who undertook to find out how the generals and colonels would feel and act. He called them together one evening, and very cautiously proceeded to inflame their minds against the emperor, and glorify the services of Wallenstein, who, he said, was the only one who could have saved the emperor from ruin, and who was now to be sacrificed again to the envy and jealousy of his enemies. This announcement caused loud protests and great indignation among those present, but, concluded Illo, the duke is not willing to undergo this new humiliation, which is a shameful reward for his long and glorious services. No, he will not wait until it pleases the emperor to kick him out, but he will go voluntarily and resign his command. But what pains him deeply is the thought that in doing so he must leave his devoted friends and comrades, and cannot reward them as he intended. It may well be thought that these remarks kindled revolt in the hearts of the soldiers, and that they swore they would not let the duke leave the army. The next morning they sent a delegation to their commander-in-chief, imploring him to desist from his intention of leaving the army, and assuring him that they would stand by him, no matter what might happen. It was only when a second delegation of the highest and most popular officers waited upon him, that the duke gave way to their entreaties, and promised to remain at the head of the army. But he attached one condition to this promise. He extracted from all the commanders a written pledge that they would all, jointly and singly, stand by him as their chief, and would consider his removal from the command of the army a public calamity. They all agreed to this condition, and a paper embodying this declaration was gotten up to be signed by all of them. Illo took it upon himself to secure all the signatures, and, in order to make short work of it, invited the commanders to an evening party at his headquarters, where he read the paper to them. But in order to preclude all suspicion in the minds of the signers, Wallenstein had inserted a clause which bound the signers to the agreement only as long as Wallenstein used the army in the service of the emperor. After Illo had read the paper, containing the saving clause, he dexterously withdrew it and substituted for it another copy without the clause, and unknowingly the commanders signed it. Moreover, most of them were half or entirely intoxicated, and could not have discovered the deception. But one or two had remained sober, and when they read the paper again after signing it, they found that it was different from the one that had been read to them. 
they indignantly charged illo with having practised a fraud on them and the company broke up in confusion and anger this half-failure seems to have opened wallenstein's eyes to the real situation in which he found himself many of his commanders were too devoted catholics to make common cause with the enemies of their church and while they were willing to stand by wallenstein to the last as the defender of their faith they refused to follow him into the protestant camp and as a deserter from the emperor's service it also opened the emperor's eyes to the necessity of prompt action unless he would permit wallenstein to concoct some plan by which he might lead the whole army into the camp of the protestants he therefore secretly commissioned general gallus one of wallenstein's subordinates to take command of the army as soon as the time had come for openly deposing the duke of friedland it was a game of duplicity and deception on both sides the emperor tried to cheat wallenstein out of his command and reward and wallenstein tried to cheat the emperor out of the army until then wallenstein had been at pilsen but after the demonstration of the commanders he deemed it advisable for his own plans and interests to transfer his headquarters to the strongly fortified city of eger which was commanded by gordon whom he considered one of his most reliable friends the larger part of the army remained at pilsen while wallenstein himself escorted by a number of picked regiments under the command of his most trusted lieutenants went to eger but there he was to meet his doom the thunderclouds of imperial wrath had been gathering more and more threateningly above his head wallenstein saw them not and feared them not had not the stars prophesied his coming elevation even when the emperor published a proclamation which was secretly distributed in the army declaring him a rebel and offering a reward for his surrender dead or alive he would not believe it he laughed at it when it was shown him under ordinary circumstances he would have had the courage to treat any imperial edict with contempt for with his army his name was a much greater power and authority than that of the emperor but a complication had arisen which in the minds of his soldiers paralyzed his efforts and re-established the emperor's supremacy this complication was the increasing strength of the protestant armies the duke's army lawless cruel and violating every rule of morality was nevertheless composed of men who stood in slavish fear of the church and of the priest and as soon as wallenstein turned against these two the soldiers turned against him they were willing to follow him to death in a catholic cause when death would open to them the gates of paradise but they refused to follow him to death when death would deliver them to the everlasting torments of hell with this invisible moral power the great commander had not reckoned among the very men whom he had picked out as his escort to eger were his murderers and they did not wait long for fear that others might anticipate them in their bloody work and capture not only the imperial reward but also the benedictions of the church these men were gordon the commander of the eger garrison and leslie both scotchmen Devereux and butler both irishmen they had always been enthusiastic friends and admirers of wallenstein but they were also fanatical catholics and when they had to choose between their commander and the church their devotion to the latter prevailed Devereux was the leading spirit in the plot he had received private instructions from gallus and piccolomini and one over the others 
They also secured the assistance of a number of soldiers in their regiments, and solemnly pledged themselves to surrender Wallenstein's person, dead or alive, to Gallus, who was to take command of the imperial army. But in order to prevent interference with their dark design, Gordon, the commander of the garrison, invited them all to the citadel for an evening entertainment. At this entertainment, while eating supper, Ilo, Turtsky, Kinsky, and Newman were murdered. It was on a Saturday evening, February 25, 1634, the day after they had arrived with Wallenstein at Eger. Wallenstein himself was not present. He had retired early that night, after having once more consulted the stars with his Italian astrologer, who discovered unfavorable signs in the constellations. But it seems Wallenstein paid no attention to these warnings, and fell soundly asleep soon afterwards. Toward midnight, or perhaps shortly after midnight, he was aroused from his sleep by a loud noise. Coming from the citadel, where Wallenstein's lieutenants had been slain, Butler, with a number of his dragoons, and Devereux, with a number of his halberdiers, marched up to Wallenstein's residence. Since both Butler and Devereux were well known to the guards in the hall, they were immediately admitted, but when they reached the anteroom to the duke's apartments, the sentinel wanted to stop them. He was cut down, not, however, before he had called for help and cried out, "'Murderers! Rebels!' It was this tumult that aroused Wallenstein. He jumped out of bed and hurried to the window to ask the sentinel posted at the entrance what was the matter. At that moment the door leading to the anteroom was burst open, and Devereux, a halberd in his hands, and followed by half a dozen of his men, entered the bedroom, where he found himself face to face with Wallenstein. "'Are you the scoundrel,' said he, "'who wants to rob his imperial majesty of his crown? You must die now.' and, without having given any answer, Wallenstein received a stab of the halberd which lacerated the intestines and caused almost immediate death. Like Caesar, he might have exclaimed, Et tu, Brute, for he had always especially befriended and distinguished this man Devereux, who had come to him poor and friendless, and who owed to him everything. One of the halberdiers wished to throw Wallenstein's corpse out of the window, but Devereux would not permit it. He rolled the body up in a table cover, and had it transported to the citadel, where the duke's murdered friends were lying in the yard, waiting for their burial. Wallenstein's body was placed by their side. It was then resolved to send the bodies of the dead generals to one of Ilo's country seats, which was in the neighborhood. In placing them in their coffins, it was found that Wallenstein's coffin was too small, and in order to force him into it, his legs had to be broken. Thus died one of the most remarkable men of the seventeenth century, the greatest of the German generals of the terrible Thirty Years' War. As a strategist, he may not have been fully the equal of Gustavus Adolphus, but he had a magnetic power over his men, which even that great commander did not possess, and which would have made him invincible had not superstition and religious awe counteracted it. The German emperor, hearing of his assassination, appeared to be overwhelmed with grief, and ordered three thousand masses to be read for the salvation of his soul. But he tried in vain to deceive the world by this hypocritical sorrow for a murder which he had planned and for which he rewarded the assassins. To this very day the treason of Wallenstein remains shrouded in doubt, and very likely it will remain forever an unsolved problem. End of chapter 13